Well, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Uh, just as a reminder, we're in Jerusalem. We, we are headed to the cross. Uh, he is about to be betrayed. He is about to be crucified. Uh, but before he gets there, he teaches. He teaches on the Temple Mount, and then we'll see that he teaches on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and uh, in this uh, situation, he gets confronted multiple times. And we're right in the midst of these confrontations with various religious leaders. Uh, and here in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, uh, they try to trap him. Uh, and we're going to look at this trap. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles or look on your bulletins, um, or if you're with us virtually on your screens, we're going to read chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, just a short section. Hear God's word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in and and trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. None of us really love. Well, however you envision it, generally speaking, people don't enjoy taxes. And that isn't to say that they don't see their usefulness or importance or that they're necessary, right? We understand that. It's what pays for our mail services and the roads and the emergency services and our schools and all sorts of things. We understand it's necessary. We know in our heads that it's like eating broccoli, And we need to pay our taxes. We understand that. But I want you to imagine for a moment what it it was like uh, for a conquered people like the Jews. Imagine that most of your taxes went to your governing overlord's pockets or they went back to Rome to a far-off land. And then, now imagine for a moment that you have this this person in your midst, this one who people are saying is the Messiah, the King, the one who's come to free you from this terrible, oppressive Roman regime. Right? So keep that in your mind. And and now imagine that it could all be over soon. Here he is. He's come to Jerusalem. He's a Galilean. And that's important. He's a Galilean from Nazareth who will come and overthrow his foreign government. This is the mind of the Jewish zealot. Zealots uh, were uh, Galileans. They were those uh, people who their main goal, their main drive was to rid themselves of Roman oppression. Uh, Later on, we'll see, uh, we won't see in the Gospels, but later on after Uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, there is actually a Jewish rebellion led by the zealots. Uh, And ultimately it's crushed. And what happens at the crushing of this Jewish rebellion 
uh, is that they actually destroy the temple in Jerusalem. The Romans come in heavy-handed, destroy it. And the zealots actually hold themselves up in a, in a mountain fortress in Masada, and they eventually take their own lives to avoid being captured by the Romans. The zealots did not believe in paying their taxes. Maybe it's hard for us to imagine something like that. You know, it's a, it's a bit more extreme. But, but again, maybe it's not. There are a few things in life that impassion us, that, that impassion us as much as money does, right? Our money. It's mine. I'm not going to let anybody have it. But as we look at our text this morning, I want us to think bigger than taxes and money. Money is a token. Money is that token by which we acknowledge something's worth. And this text is not just about taxes, rather it is about authority. It's about paying due, paying to the one to whom it is due, what what they require. It's about honoring those who are placed over us and about paying homage to the king. And ultimately, it's about paying homage and honor and giving glory and due to the king of kings himself. And I think that this is something that is difficult for all of us. For like the zealots, we don't want to be ruled over. We want our freedom and our autonomy. Yet, this is our call to give to the king the glory do his name. Now, I want to consider this text in three short parts, in this idea of giving to the king the glory that is due his name, in three sections. Rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, rendering to God what is God's, and then I want us to think about the satisfaction of the king, right? So those are the three places I want to go this morning as we consider what it means to give the king the glory that's due his name. So first, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar. So the first thing that we notice is that the religious leaders, probably the the chief priests most likely, sent this delegation to Jesus. This is what we see here in the text. Notice what it says in verse three or in verse thirteen. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Who are these people, the Pharisees and the Herodians? Well, we kind of have seen them throughout the Gospel of Mark. Um, Pharisees, though not zealots per se, would have been sympathetic to the zealot cause. They were people who believed that their ultimate allegiance was to following God and to following God's law. And they would have seen that the ultimate way or path forward uh, to ridding themselves of Roman was through strict obedience to the law of God. They thought if, we, if we're if we righteous, then God will free us from this bondage. It was sort of a return to uh, a religious rigor. But they would have been sympathetic to the zealots. And likely some of them may have known some zealots. Maybe there were some zealots within the Pharisaic uh, group. We don't know. But whatever Jesus said it's no doubt it would be reported somehow back to the zealots. And that's important. Keep that in your mind. Secondly, who are the Herodians? Well, they're kind of like the opposite of the the Pharisees and the zealots. 
they were Jews who support who were supporters of Rome, particularly of Herod, who was himself Jewish to a degree, and they would have seen him as an ally, and they likely would have reported back to the Roman authorities whatever it was that Jesus said in response to their question. So you have these two sort of opposing forces, the Pharisees and the Zealots, who viewed Rome with great, uh, hatred is a strong word, but uh, great dislike and, and wanted to see them gone. And then you had the Herodians who kind of sidled up to the Romans, sidled up to Herod, sidled up to those authorities and powers. And so you have these two groups. And in many ways, it was an alliance of convenience, right? The Pharisees would have looked down on the Herodians as morally inferior, and the Herodians would have looked at the Pharisees as maybe, uh, uh, how do you put it, um, sort of unwilling to work with the situation at hand, maybe is the best way to put it. They, They would have looked at each other with great disdain. But in this instance, they were allies. How does the saying go? My enemies, enemies are my friends. It's kind of what the Herodians and the Pharisees would have been like. And they were sent as a cohort. And they came to Jesus and they came with a very specific purpose of trapping Jesus. They wanted to trap him uh, between two horns of that, you know, the horns of a dilemma. They wanted to stick him on the the horns and say, all right, which way are you going to go? Which way are you going to choose? Are you going to side with the zealots? Are you going to say, render unto God what is God's, but don't give anything to Caesar? Or are you going to go the other way? Are you going to say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's? He deserves that. And, you know, sort of give honor and, and allegiance to the Roman authorities. Which way are you going to go, Jesus? They came to trap him between the two horns. The zealots and the populace resenting Roman rule and the Roman authorities, those two horns. If Jesus was a zealot, there would be grounds for what? There would be grounds for Rome to, to squash him, to crucify him, to, to, to deal with the problem of Jesus. They, they saw this as an opportunity. If Jesus sided with Rome, he would be seen not as the Messiah, but as a traitor to his own people. And they were pretty crafty in their approach to Jesus. You notice that here in the text? They kind of butter him up. They said, teacher. So they called him rabbi. They said, rabbi. is a sign of honor and dignity. Rabbi, we know that you are true. You don't care about what anyone thinks. You don't care about what anyone's perception of you is. You don't worry about those things. You are a man of truth. You teach the way of God. They, they, they try to butter him up. Really what they're trying to do, of course, is force his hand. You remember the last time that the religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked him a question? It was right before that parable of the tenants. You remember they, they challenged Jesus. They said, by what authority do you come? And Jesus con- confounded them and said, Okay, answer me this, you know, what of John? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from earth? You know, that was, that was a question to a question. And what happened was the religious leaders themselves got stuck on the horn of a dilemma. If they said, well, John was from heaven, then they would have to worship and obey Christ because John was pointing to Jesus. 
And if they said that John was from man, they would have faced the ire of the people. So now they're trying to flip the script. They're trying to say, let's put him on that dilemma train. Let's let's stick him in a place where he can't give a solid answer. So they butter him up. Try to force his hand to answer the question. To put him in a pickle. I have very, one of my favorite, I love baseball. I love watching it. Some people think it's a slow sport. But it has some of the best tension of any sport. It may be the best tension of any sport. And in baseball, there's one particular situation that happens so infrequently, but that's when a base runner is caught between bases. You practice this in baseball. You sit there and you you practice, practice these throwdowns between the players to catch this uh, this player and to tag him out before he reaches the base. And he goes back and forth, back and forth, and sort of the this 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 it starts shrinking down, and he's caught between a rock and a hard place. He's in a pickle. They thought they had Jesus in a pickle. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? As I've said already, for the Pharisees and for the Zealots who would be informed most likely after or observing this dialogue, the question on the face of it, you know, it was about pleasing God. The Pharisees said, you know, tell us, Jesus, does it please God to pay taxes to somebody who claims to be a God? Isn't that just a form of idolatry? You know, you can see that the the way they were trying to, to frame it. But for the Herodians and the authorities behind them, the question on the face of it was, about obedience to the civil rulers, about civil order, about caring for all the machinations of running an empire. How do you expect to have safe roads? How do you expect to have protection and law and order without paying these tributes or taxes? Jesus, who are you going to honor? Are you going to honor Caesar? Or are you going to honor God? Of course, they weren't honest questions. They weren't really seeking an answer. They were seeking to resolve. They were, they were not seeking to resolve the conflict between themselves, right? They weren't like the Herodians and Pharisees coming to the rabbi saying, resolve a conflict for us. We're having trouble getting along and we know you're wise. No, they were hypocrites full of pretense and malice. Their only goal was to catch Jesus on the horn of that dilemma, one side or the other. Anger the zealots or anger Rome. Either way, they could get rid of Jesus. That was their aim. That was their goal. And of course, Jesus saw their insincerity, right? He called them on it. And he says this question. He says, why put me to the test? Jesus wants to get at the root, right? He, he wants them to be honest with themselves. Why, why are you doing this? What's your real purpose here? Let's be honest. Let's have a frank discussion. It has nothing to do with paying taxes, does it? 
Jesus is exasperated. Of course, he knows that in the end of all of this, it is leading to his death and he is going. But it leaves him no less distressed to see God's people rejecting him. So what does Jesus do? He calls for a denarii. It was the common Roman tribute coinage. It was how they would pay their tribute to Rome, their, their tax. On one side of the coin was the vigis, vigis, visage of Tiberius, son of Caesar Augustus. On this little coin, he is portrayed as a demigod, one to be honored and worshipped. What an amazing thing. Jesus takes this little coin that pictures the Roman emperor as a god. He has it. The inscription says, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Right? It was a claim. Here was Jesus. The one who would be justified in saying, he is no god. He is a pretender. I am God. I am the one who is to be worshipped. Toss the coin aside. But he doesn't. He asks, whose visage is this? Of course, the reply is Caesar. And so he says, render unto Caesar things that are Caesar's. This is a remarkable statement. This is an absolutely remarkable statement. The Pharisees at this moment think, we have him. Aha, he's in Rome's pocket. He's no Messiah. He's a psychophant like these these Herodians. He's just trying to suck up to Rome. Why is this man claiming to be the Messiah capitulating to Roman rulers? But it is quite remarkable to think about the Son of God saying, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But actually, it's a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. And this is the theme. There is no authority in heaven or on earth that is not there except by the direct hand of God, right? It, except by the sovereign will of God, does there no leader on heaven or earth in any point in history except by the sovereign hand of God? Friends, I can't think of a more timely truth. You all know, I don't have to say anything, we are in the most tumultuous, contentious election season at least in my lifetime. And no matter where you fall in the aisle, whether you fall on one side or the other side or no side, you're just not in the aisle at all, it's important to be reminded of this truth. There is no ruler in heaven or in earth, good or evil, who is not under the sovereign hand of God. Now, I have to be real careful here. I think sometimes we get caught up in it and we think we can sort of be the hand of God, right? And, and in some ways, we are called to be active as citizens of this nation who have a voice and who have a vote. So 
we ought to go out there and and use that. But at the other hand, we have to realize that we don't have the grand scheme of God's mind in hand, and what happens, happens in his purview and for his purposes. And sometimes we don't know what his purposes are, and they can be very hard to discern. But what we know to be true, what we can be absolutely certain of, is whatever comes to pass, whatever happens, we are called to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, there are all sorts of theoretical questions enmeshed in this, right? We could have a, we could have a full-on, long discussion about what does that mean? What does that look like? We don't have time to unpack it all, but... But I think at the, at the principle level, we have to remind ourselves of that truth. It's, so, it's important for us simply to recognize our responsibility to give honor to those to whom honor is due, which is those who are in authority over us, our civil governments. This is the principle that we have to consider when we approach the particulars of whatever current civil condition we find ourselves in. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Man, that's hard. This is the word of God. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Again, there's so much we could talk about in this, right? There's so so much here that would take a long time to unpack what does that mean in every specific instance or in the current climate that we're in, but we, I just want us to hear those words and let them rest in us. And he goes on, Apostle Paul goes on and he says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. <laughs> Paul, Paul goes there with the money thing. He says, you, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I don't know about you, but this might be one of the most difficult instructions in all of Scripture. Because, and this is the important thing, why? Because we are by nature, and maybe particularly as Americans, right, we're rebels. That's just our, that's how we were. That's how we came to be in this country. We rebelled. Uh, so maybe it's particular to us as Americans, but I think it's part of our human nature. It is our strongest desire to be autonomous. And here's the thing: our unwillingness to render to unto Caesar what is Caesar exposes the deeper issue. It exposes the deeper problem, and this is the deeper problem: if we're unable to honor our civil authorities, whom God appoints. What makes us think we'll honor God? 
And this brings me to the second thing that Jesus says here in our second point. Render to God what is God's. Now, when he said that, it confounded everybody. Uh, what is he saying? The Pharisees and the Herodians, what is, they're, they're wondering, okay, you said render to Caesar. We, we got that. But when you said render to God, well, which is it? How can it be both? See, they had a false dichotomy, right? That was the root of the issue. They wanted to position it as an either-or situation. You either are worshiping and, and honoring the Roman Empire, or you're worshiping and honoring God, and your tax or your, your tribute, whichever one you give it to, defines which one you honor. But Jesus is saying it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And it's a both-and because as the sovereign king of kings, God has appointed Tiberius to rule over them. This was too much for the Pharisees and the Zealots. But it's also condemning of the Herodians as well, who had given over their primary fidelity to Herod and to Rome, who were willing to compromise all sorts of moral callings and laws in order to maintain their place of privilege in the society. After all, cozying up to Herod gave them privileges and acceptance within the Roman world. Here, Jesus is condemning both sides. He's saying neither side. In the final analysis, in the final analysis, you are called to give honor to God. In your refusal, Pharisees, zealots, to recognize and honor uh, your duties to Herod, or to the emperor, you are not honoring God. To the Herodians, you who are unwilling to acknowledge God as the ultimate king of kings, you are not honoring God. So the text, what does it say about this? The text says they marveled. They were dumbfounded. They were caught. And here's the crux. This is the crux of the issue that's going on that Jesus is exposing. What belongs to God? Because that was the call. He says, render under God what belongs to God. Okay, so then the question is, what belongs to God? Everything. Everything. All all glory, all honor, all praise, all obedience, our very lives are owed to God himself. And I think that this is the root issue for every single person in the world, for all of us. The problem isn't taxes. The problem isn't money. It's not with discerning that place where we might rightly disobey civil law and obey God's law. There is a, there's a place to discuss that. It's not an unimportant question. We're certainly called to fidelity to God, even in the face of the sword of the state and saints throughout history have said, I'm going to obey God and not Caesar and have given their lives to that. And I think it's important that we consider that cost of discipleship if faced with that kind of a dilemma 
but I don't believe we can rightly face such moral dilemmas until we wrestle with this much more fundamental issue of our hearts. Do we render to God the things that belong to him? Do we see his glory and honor and authority as the ultimate, as the most important? I think when Jesus said, render to God what is God's, he cut everyone to the heart. Because our issue as humans is that we, by nature, are glory thieves. That's what we are. We are glory thieves. We don't want to pay homage to Caesar, and we don't want to pay homage to God, but we want it for ourselves. We want to hold back. We want to keep it for us. Sure, we we might give the Lord some honor. We might give some obedience. But we want it for ourselves. That's our fundamental issue. And this goes way back to the sin of our first parents. It was a desire to be like God, to have what God had, to take his portion for themselves. And doesn't this manifest itself in so many ways? Certainly it manifests itself in our money matters, right? And not just keeping it for ourselves, but even how we, how we give it to others. Like we want ultimate control of that. But it manifests itself in different ways. It, our failure to obey God, our failure to love God, our failure to love one another. All of this is wrapped up in this idea of giving honor and glory to God alone. Rendering unto God what is God's. Friends, this is an impossible task. Why? Because we're required to give all of ourselves. We're required to give our very lives. And this brings me to my final thought and conclusion. This idea of the satisfaction of the king. I don't want us to forget the context that this conversation finds itself in. Here he was, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount days before his trial and execution. These religious leaders refused to honor him as king. The Romans refused to honor him as king. In fact, what would end up happening is that they would mock him and crown him with thorns and put a sign above him on the cross saying mockingly, King of the Jews, right? Here he is. This is your king. This is your Messiah. He's dying. And this is the absolute wonder of the gospel. Absolute majesty of it all. Because here the king of glory was rendering unto God his very life. Here he was, the king, the Messiah, and he was saying to his heavenly father, here I am, I'm giving all to you. Why? Not for his own glory, not for his own sake, but to glorify his father in heaven and to give us glory. What? That we don't deserve. This is the amazing thing here. He was paying a cost. Right? He was not just paying a tribute, but he was paying a cost, a debt due to us 
for our rebellion and unwillingness to honor God as God, to honor the king as king. And in and through that work, he made a satisfactory payment. He canceled our debt. And in and through his death and resurrection, what was the king doing? He was giving us all in all, for he was giving us himself. It's hard to wonder or comprehend the wonder of this truth. Here we are, we're trying to grasp all this glory and honor and wealth away from God for ourselves so that we might present ourselves to others as glorious, right? Here we are taking things for ourselves. And what is the Lord of glory doing? He's giving it all away. Why? Why? Well, we read it earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. When you read those words, eternal life, read in them enjoyment of the glory of God and all the treasures of heaven. Here we are stealing and thieving and keeping back what is rightfully belonging to God. And what is he doing? He's laying himself down for you. He gives himself to redeem. Use that language, redeem, right? That is the language of purchase, of cost, of buying back. You who refuse to give tribute to God, the Lord redeems by his grace, for his glory, and for your good. All praise and glory be to the King of kings. Give him all the glory and honor that he is due. Let's pray.